0: Cool, how's everybody doing? Uh, For some of y'all sitting in with us, my name is Colby, and I serve as a teaching elder. Uh, Our habit has been to go verse by verse, straight through books of the Bible. Um, So I um, teach the full counsel of God. We hit every topic that the Bible um, lays out before us. We believe it's all important. Um, I didn't necessarily uh, grow up in the church. I had grandparents who took me. Uh, But my mom was a bartender, and my dad did most of my childhood uh, in prison. And so I was just kind of a hood rat kid that constantly got in trouble. Um, My eighth grade year, uh, I got 13 SWATs. And I know here in Colorado, I don't even think you guys do SWATs anymore. Uh, Oklahoma, it's old school, all right? And so eighth grade year, 13 SWATs, getting in trouble all the time, getting kicked out of school. Um, After... Uh, and I'm gonna come back to this. A- after my freshman year of college, I myself get in trouble with the law. I'm kind of constantly in trouble at school, and um, because of that, I think Google put it in their algorithm that I just love stories about criminals. Uh, because I got one that came across. I told this actually to some people that showed up early. Um, there's a story. And I don't even know if it's true anymore. Who knows what you read on the internet. But there's a kid in Australia who they're watching his phone and left his home when he wasn't supposed to leave his phone because, boy, they're tripping down in Australia about coronavirus, all right? I don't know if you've seen it. And so this kid, they test him. He doesn't have COVID, none of stuff, but he, he left his home when he wasn't supposed to, so they put him in one of these, it's not a concentration camp, all right? But it, it's, it's a detention center for adults. And they put the kid in these like white buildings, and I don't know how old he is, 16, 17. But this kid he escapes from these adult detention centers. All right? And for me, I'm gonna tell you right now, this may be the flesh, and I'll repent. I, that is awesome. You know what I mean? <laughs> because in my mind, I'm thinking, I remember skipping school or trying to skip out on detention. This brother ran from his government in Australia. He gets out of it, created a a nationwide manhunt for a teenage kid who didn't have COVID, but is out illegally running around. I don't, maybe they still he may be out doing a walkabout to this day. I don't even know what the end of the story is. So I don't know what you got away with, but this kid is he's on the run from the government. Considering the fact that at one time it was an island full of criminals, nobody should be surprised. <laughs> like, nobody. And so I, I, I read that sh- story, and I, I just I kind of love it. You know what I mean? And there's something about criminals that I, I felt When I first started doing ministry, I started doing, similar to what uh, Dennis does, I started doing jail ministry. And one thing that I know about criminals is that the people that I did ministry with in jail, the one thing I absolutely loved about jail ministry, they all knew they were sinners. Do you know the most annoying thing about doing church ministry? There's a whole bunch of us that don't think we're really sinners. We're hypothetical sinners. Or our sins are not as bad as somebody else's. Our sins don't deserve judgment so you go into a jail you got people that know that they're broken that they've screwed up that they've done things in rebellion to god that they've run from god but you come into church and people can sit here and think all day long that they are good people i mean i can sit up here and teach the bible all day long where the bible says there is none righteous no not one but that's going to fly over their head. Do you think you're talking about somebody else? So here's the thing. We're coming to the text today. We're going to talk about hell. And I know that's super exciting for you. You're like, I hope he really talks about hell today at church. Um, so we're going, to, we're going to dive in because the Bible is going to address this topic about what we truly deserve as sinners and, and call us to radically repent of the things that would lead us to eternal punishment. And, and I, I think that what God has to say is powerful and profound, and it's, it's, it's not worth skipping. So, let's pray, and then we're going to dive into the text. If you'd bow your hearts and minds and just prepare yourself to hear God's Word. Let everything outside this room and everything else you have to do today be somewhere else. And let's just, um, let's just meet God in His Word today together. Dear Heavenly Father, we enter your courts with thanksgiving and your presence with praise. Praise is befitting of You because You are perfectly holy and just and righteous. And there is no error or sin in You. You are all perfection. And God would not. The fact that we know You at all or have, patient or have opportunity to repent today is because of Your patience and Your long-suffering and Your love. And so, Father... Um, would you get our modern minds out of the way so that you can speak directly to our hearts about the gospel and about grace, about your church, and about the life and the trajectory that each one of us is on. And so if there's somebody here that's already got their their guard up and their walls up, God, would you just let them fall for maybe an hour or so So that we might do business with you and deal with you. And so, God, come be the King of our hearts and our minds. Sovereign Lord, say whatever you want to say and lead us in the direction you want us to go. We pray that strong name of Jesus. Everyone said, Amen. If you got a Bible, and I hope you do, open your Bible to Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 42. Now, before we get into this, let me jog a little bit about what we did last week. Last week was Pro Life Sunday where we deal with moms and dads and families and abortion and genocide and evil. And it fit with the text. We kind of skipped ahead, actually, and went to chapter 10, uh, 13 through 16, and talked about we are either a culture that despises children or we're a culture that welcomes children, but we can't be both at the same time. And this teaching led us into this concept in Scripture That said, truly, verse 15, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And we said this, there are some things about the kingdom of God that we can only learn from the little people. That God has locked and hardwired inside of children a particular witness about reality... That we will experience and hear preached to us in no other way. And so it's not surprising then that our culture wants to slaughter children by the millions. To silence or snuff out that witness. But then that leaves us with this thing. And we, uh, as I jumped in with the house church that meets over in Mesa Meadows um, this week, it kind of got us in this conversation. Well, what does it mean to to be childlike and to enter the kingdom? And We said there's a lot of things this can mean, but I think at basic it means one thing, and this is important for where we're going to lead into the text today. Um, I think that it means, at the very least, a humble dependence, a reception of grace that is absolutely undeserved. Uh, And the best illustration of this is I have uh, five kids, my youngest is three, I think, Um, and He's three, Abe, Abe, baby, Abraham, Abraham, all right? That's my babe down there at the bottom. And here's Abraham. He's three years old. And Abraham was born into our family, all right? And Abe has contributed jack squat to our home. I mean, absolutely nothing. That dude ain't got a job. There's no income stream that Abe has coming in, right? And I don't know if you know Abe, He ain't doing the dishes at our house. Like the chore level. He creates chores for the other kids. Right? But here's the thing about Abraham. He was born in his whole life experience. If he was hungry, he ate. If he's thirsty, he asks mama. He gets something to drink. I don't know if you know this. Abraham has never went without clothes. Like involuntarily like he has a roof over his head right he's got two parents that love him he do you know that humans are a species that from the time we are born we're completely dependent we can talk about how a child is dependent on its mother in the womb but do you realize a two-year-old is dependent on a family like if you leave a two-year-old out in the street they ain't making it Do you hear what I'm saying we are born 1,000% dependent. And we float around completely by grace. Like everything that he's got is unmerited favor. And he, we have to teach him to say thank you for it. Because he's never went without. And there's something about that in the kingdom. That if we're going to come into the kingdom. We come in with donating diddly squat to God. You don't come into the kingdom bartering with God on your good works. You come into the kingdom unbelievably dependent. And that's where we all become children of God, isn't it? And we're all little ones to Him. And so I think that's, in some ways, the same kind of spirit that he had been talking about in 33 through 37, when he talks about receiving a child in my name, he keeps using children as this illustration of childlikeness. Now, this I've said this before. This is not childishness. We don't want to be childish. We want to be childlike in our humility and dependence in receiving the kingdom. And this is completely countercultural to them who are arguing about who is the greatest. So Jesus says, if you want to be first, you have to be last. Then it comes into they had just tried to stop somebody else from doing ministry in Jesus' name. The context of where we're going to get in today is the passage just before was that the disciples were tripping because somebody was out doing ministry and they weren't on their team. They weren't going to their church in their denomination doing it that way. And so they begin to trip. And Jesus says, don't stop them. And we did a whole sermon on that. So now let's look down in verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones. Now, I'm going to argue here, this is not talking about children in particular. He's talking about the childlike disciples that are his, this is talking about his church. These little ones, exactly the same type of context from verse 41. Truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink to you because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. This is paralleling those that belong to Christ as little ones. And he's saying those that belong to Christ have become decreased so that I might increase. Do you see that picture? Okay. Who believe in me to sin. Who causes them to. To sin, the word is scandalon here in Greek. It's, it's where we get trap or trip or stumble. It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So at basis where Jesus is going to begin and maybe a statement that we can say that summarizes this is that Jesus is zealous for his church. Jesus is zealous for his church. And this isn't new here. God says to Abraham, I will bless those that bless you and I will curse those that curse you. The Old Testament is going to teach us that God's people are the apple of his eye. And if you come sticking your grubby fingers around my eye, I will go Jackie Chan real quick. Nobody likes to be poked in the eye. So you can't just mess with the apple of his eye and think there will be no consequences. This picks up on a theme. Here's what it is. Solicitation of Christians to sin is something you do at a risk to your own life. Solicitation of Christians to sin is an activity that you do at risk to your own life. Here's why. Because Christ is in believers. He's in believers in ways He is not in the world. You can't isolate the Christian from Christ. They are inseparable. Corinthians even makes this argument about sexual immorality, that when we commit sexual immorality, we are joining God's temple to a prostitute. And the argument is, how dare we? Nothing in Romans separates us from Christ. So... Maybe before we gossip about another Christian, we need to pump our brakes, amen? Before we write a blog bashing the whole church when we're really just wanting to talk about our local church, we should be careful about what we post. Before we go on a rant on social media about a church or another Christian, the Holy Spirit should filter that junk, amen? Because Christ loves his church. Do you realize that the Apostle Paul was called Saul and he was persecuting the church? God knocks Paul off of his horse and he says, why are you persecuting me? Paul's tripping. He's like, I haven't been persecuting you, Jesus. I've been persecuting your people. See, in Paul's persecution of his people, he is in fact persecuting Christ. How about this teaching of Jesus? He says, to, he comes to the the end times is kind of an eschatological um, parable at the end. And he says, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was naked, you clothed me. I was in jail and you gave me, you came and visited me. And the church responded, When did we see you hungry, thirsty, like needing clothes or in jail? And Jesus says, That which you did to the least of these brothers of mine, so you did unto me. See, I think we have a low view of christ and so we have a low view of how we treat the church in whom christ dwells this is important because this is the basis of the holy threat that jesus is about to make the basis of this threat is if you kick the bear cub you're going to answer to mama Everywhere in the world where you see the church bleeding, you are inevitably seeing God bring judgment or revival. Tertullian, the early church father, said, the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. That many nations and governments right now that are persecuting the church are making its implantation inevitable. Or they're bringing about their own judgment. So, he uses this language that for those that would solicit Christians into sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone, now I got a picture of this that the guys will bring up, a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. All right? Uh, and so, what is a millstone in the Bible? Let's look here, go to the next one. This is a millstone, uh, it's not a small rock. Uh, Go to the next one. Uh, Most of the time, you harness it to an animal because it took multiple men in order to turn it. They would put the grain on the inside of it and then the weight of the stone would crush the grain um, and make it useful. So go to the last one. I think there's one more. Um, In regards to this, there were smaller, smaller versions such as this one that were there. Romans would sometimes take Jews and execute them by tying through this hole in the middle a rope around it and tossing them into the sea. Now, the Jews were not a major seafaring people, even though they lived on the Mediterranean. They had an absolute fear of water, right? And so the Romans executed them in this way because it also said something about their graves. When they were thrown into the water, they would have no gravesite. They were just buried um, unmarked inside of the water. Right, You don't have to be like a doctor to know that the neck is not the strongest part of the human body. Like I went and watched Jeremy uh, wrestle this last week. And when you're in wrestling, they're doing all these exercises to build up the neck. Because some other big hefty kid is going to put their hands on your neck and weigh you down. Which is unbelievable to watch at my age, right? Because I can sleep on my pillow wrong. And for two weeks, I will be complaining, Right? And they're just going to lay on each other's necks. It's, it's like a weak point in the human body. If you control the neck, you can control the whole direction of the dude. And so, Jesus is coming. I, I, the person does this. It would This is comparative language. It would be better for you to have one of those stones wrapped up around your neck. And you be thrown in the sea. Than to cause a Christian to stumble in sin. Do we feel the gravity of that? holy threat. Do we feel the gravity of it? Do we, do we have any sense of the righteousness of it? He says it would be better. Be better. So let's, let's go from the outset of this whole passage. I think every single one of us is going to have to grapple with getting the depth and the sense and the severity of what Jesus is communicating here. Like, we all are going to be slow to get this. Now, if that's hard to get, let's go to the next one. 43 says, And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better... Again, comparative language. For you to enter life crippled, than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out, for it is better to enter the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is paralleled to life here with one eye, then with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Hell is unquenchable fire where the worm does not die. The kingdom of God, which is different from this place, is paralleled to life. Three parts of the body that are mentioned here are hand, foot, and eye. So it's like Jesus going full pirate here, losing hand, foot, and eye. And we've taught that here before. all right. And so he's saying that it's better to amputate these parts of your body than to allow them to take you into hell. He didn't say the wisdom teeth. Because if he would have said wisdom teeth, I think I'm good. I could lose my wisdom teeth. He took incredibly valuable and precious parts of the body that none of us would want to lose. If you're a multi-millionaire in here and you lost your hand... How much money would you give in order to get the hand back instead of a buy a new house? The hand is more valuable than the house. He takes something that every single human would say, there's no amount of money I would take in order to give up my hand or my foot or my eye. He takes some precious. I do not believe Jesus here is saying actually to amputate those things. Because if it were true, then some of you in here could cut off a hand and you'd be free from sin. And people without hands still find a way to sin. So I don't think it's amputation, all right? I think what he's getting at here is the concept of value. We value the things that help us sin and pursue our idols. And Jesus is going to say that no matter what is precious to you, nothing is worth keeping if it leads you to hell. The most valuable asset you have in your life is worth forfeiting in order to enter the kingdom. Let me, let me just be on the outset for some of us that are shocked by this. This is not weakened Christianity, amen? Nominal Christians will never get this because they'll say, that's too extreme. Don't be too serious. Don't give up too much. But Jesus is going to respond and say unless you take up your cross and die, you will never enter the kingdom. And by the way, taking up a cross and dying is more extreme than a hand and a foot and an eye, right? So this isn't different than the same call to discipleship that Jesus has had upon us from the get-go. But the The reality that Jesus is trying to say here is that sin is serious and hell is real. And there is no calamity that could fall upon you or that could fall upon me than that we choose our sin over our Savior. No calamity. No car wreck. No loss of property. No loss of hand, foot, or eye. That is greater than this. Now, let's get into the, 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 this topic a bit. Because I would imagine that for most of us here, we've, uh, if you've attended church at all, you have likely never heard a sermon, especially the young people, about hell. I mean, unless you come from one of those old school, right? Like for most of us, when we think about hell, we probably have a Hollywood cartoonist caricature that is made by people who don't know the Bible, that has infiltrated our thinking about hell more than the Bible has infiltrated our thinking. We have a medieval, Hollywood, knockoff thing that the Bible would probably affirm is that's not even accurate. Furthermore, we kind of had this old school mentality of fire and brimstone, right? There used to be these fire and brimstone preachers everywhere. And the picture... Oftentimes picked up by Hollywood if these are, like, um, manipulative, hate-filled preachers. But if you begin to read history, as I do, you can read some of the most fire and brimstone preachers, which some of you might have read Jonathan Edwards for an English class, for instance. Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God is a sermon most high school students have to read. If you start to study Edwards, you realize how often he weeped over his people. He wept over his people as proper English. How much, as a loving pastor, he warned them of the dangers of sin. As a loving pastor, he, he tried to keep them from the curse. He tried to warn them of the dangers of hell. But we don't have the loving pastor trying to steer his sheep in a good direction. What we have is hate-filled, Hollywood version of fire and brimstone. So even when we come to a passage here that starts to deal with hell, we import all kinds of cultural baggage about what this is going to lead to or what it won't. But the Bible is going to come to this and say, no one talked more about hell than Jesus. Jesus, as a matter of fact, talked more about hell than he did heaven. You can go into all kinds of parables that Jesus taught about the wise versus unwise uh, virgins. You could come into parables um, about Uh, unworthy or foolish stewards who were cast into outer darkness. You could get into stuff that has nothing to do with parables. You could get into real stories he told like the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man was in a place of torment separated from Abraham's bosom. You could get into a separation of the sheep and goats. And I'm not talking about Tom Brady. Alright? And about that the place of hell was not originally created for us. It was destined For the angels who fell, the devil and the angels that went with him. So here's the thing. Jesus, who many would argue throughout the world, is the most loving person in the world, talked more about hell than any other character in the Bible. It's not necessarily a novel subject, though, is it? Have you ever read the Old Testament? It mentions judgment and justice and accountability all through the, have you ever flipped to some of those books and you just read a story about somebody getting smoked? I mean, what do you think that's talking about? That is a temporal judgment. That is a shadow of the eternal judgment that's to come. See, we we come to this now and we say, well, aren't we supposed to be talking about a God of love? Well, here's my argument: if you don't understand and you can't explain the justice of God, you don't understand His grace. Period. Grace is not getting what we deserve. It's unmerited favor. When we use the word love, as Christians, we're pointing in gospel love direction. So here's the thing. If grace is not getting what we deserve, come talk to me about what we deserve. Biblically. Okay, so here's the thing. Deserve is kind of a funny little word for us as Christians, right? Like, I went into Target, which was a mistake to begin with. And I was, I was looking at an item for sale there, and the marketing was, you deserve this. I, like, I deserve it? Like, just snatch it up. what are we doing here? I deserve this. I, they were appealing to this false sense of entitlement and their marketing in that direction. You watch car commercials and how they're going to come at you with entitlement. You deserve this. Deserve is a funny word for Christians because as Christians we understand that if we get what our sins demand from justice, if we get what we deserve, all of us are going to hell. All of us. Matter of fact, the Christian is the person that looks at the evil we've done with our hands, the things that we've said, the things that we have thought, been a part of, and we can blatantly look at the Bible and look up to God and say, God, I deserve your wrath. I deserve punishment. If nobody here wants to play the deserve game, what I want is mercy. God, don't give me what I deserve Give me Jesus. Have mercy on my soul. Grant clemency. God, I deserve hell. No, let me put it to you this way. Nobody's going to heaven sitting around drinking coffee being like, well, I deserve to be here. That guy? yeah, Right? There's nobody in heaven talking about how they deserve to be there. All of us are going to be like, I absolutely do not belong here without Jesus. I don't belong here. That's the beauty of the gospel. You want me to talk about why people don't get how precious the love of God is? It's because they don't understand how strict His justice is. The stricter the justice, the sweeter the mercy. And with God, you have a judge that is impartial. You have the highest justice, the highest holiness. And that's why the mercy and the grace is unbelievably sweet. Amen? It is to me. Hell comes from this word, Gehenna. Um, Gehenna um, is is kind of a Hebrew word, uh, Valley of Himam. I've taught this before here. Um, The kings in the Old Testament began to sacrifice their children to the false god, Molech. They abandoned God and they began to slaughter their own children to Molech. And this place was decried by the prophet Jeremiah. Eventually the practice was ended by the righteous king, Josiah. And in this valley, it became basically where the abortion clinic was, it became the city dump. And they would throw trash and garbage and sewage, and they'd throw dead bodies there. And and so there was constantly sewage and maggots and trash. And it was just something that constantly had burning in it, right? And so this picture of basically the city dump became the lake of fire precursor that would happen in the book of Revelation. And so Gehenna was this thing. And so some people will come and say, well, surely hell is a, Gehenna is a metaphor for something else, right? Like this picture of unquenchable fire or worm doesn't die or outer darkness or separation or torment or Lake of Fire, or Gehenna, because it's talking about, it has to be like a metaphor for something else. And I say, yeah, I think that's absolutely possible. Um, But do you understand how metaphors work? (laughs) Like, it's it's a metaphor for something far worse than a valley outside the gates of Jerusalem. That is a small picture of a greater reality. And the greater reality is the justice of God pointed at sin with no filter of the blood of Christ. That's the flame. It's the wrath of God. And I get that modern preachers want to explain that away because they don't want to deal with the holiness, the justice of God. They, in some ways, trying to erase hell think they're making God more loving when in fact, without the justice of God, you don't understand the grace of God and so they're actually making God less loving. So this brings us to this maybe question that we could diagnose our culture and maybe diagnose the pulse of your own heart. How many times... Have you thought about the eternal consequence of the evil that you've done in your life? Has it ever stopped you in your tracks? Do you think as a culture that we are concerned that we will face eternal judgment for the evil that we've done? I'm not mincing words. I'm not talking mistakes and errors. I'm talking about times that we have broken God's law. Do you think that's a scare tactic of Jesus or do you think that Jesus is warning you about the trajectory of your life? He's doing a loving, check yourself before you wreck yourself kind of thing. It's interesting. The Bible would affirm here that everyone that goes to hell chooses it. Because they choose something else instead of Him and the kingdom. Everybody that goes to hell chooses it. They want sin and they want separation from God. In the end, God is either going to look at us who have chosen our sin and chosen not to follow Him. He's going to look at us and say, Thy will be done. Or here, we're going to look at God, abandon our sin and say, God, Your will be done. And it's going to be just. Either we're going to be given what we deserve eternally. Or God is going to be just and the justifier by paying the penalty of our sin on our behalf through faith in the of Christ. That's it. That is the option. In the end, we either say to God, thy will be done. Or God says to us, thy will be done. One way or the other. and in, in one sense, I know I want to belabor this, but what are people complaining about? What are people complaining about? Do they want forgiveness of their sin? Do they want to not go to hell? Look to the cross and the forgiveness that's been given. Oh, well, and abandon it and turn from that sin and follow Christ. See, that's the problem. I want my sin And I want forgiveness, and I don't want to turn from it. See, I want to sin and do evil without consequence. I think that most of us, just to be a 1,000% honest, actually believe in justice. I think we have an internal sense of justice. Here's why I know. Get in line at McDonald's and let somebody cut you. I mean, in one of those cuts where they don't even give you the Midwestern, hey, sorry, and cut in front of you, they just cut. Is there not something inside you, something so trivial as getting cut in line? Your justice, some of you that are packing heat will tap a gun that is hidden on your person, right? What? you got this sense of justice within you that you have wronged me. I think we get justice, right? Here's something that I know. I have uh, done lots of marriage counseling with um, lots of different couples that have had just different things that they had to work through. And almost every single session that I've ever done in marriage counseling has begun with one person looking at the other person and say, you need to fix them. That's not your guys' marriages. Y'all are all perfect. All perfect. It's like as though I'm hired and you got no problems over here. It's all them. They're all messed up. Let them have it. Right? Mercy for me. Justice for them. Anybody? Do you know how hard it is in a marriage counseling situation to convince both people that they're both part of the problem? Super easy. Easiest thing I do all week. In. All right, let's keep going. 49, let's roll this thing up. Uh, as we can't go any worse than talking about hell. 49. For, this is connected to hell, uh, everyone will be salted with fire. Everyone. What does that mean? Salt is good, and if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourself, and be at peace with one another. That peace with one another is kind of like fascinating to me, unless you understand what he's already been saying. If you have sin that's unrepented of inside you, it causes you to do sin that causes others to stumble on the outside of you. People that have unrepentant sin in them cause divisions and fights and manipulation and competition, they cause war on the outside of them. So he's calling us to radical repentance at the loss of hand, foot, and eye, by comparison, that repentance brings us in a harmony where we can get along better with each other if all of us are repenting of our sin. That's just a a beautiful little flow right into this. But then there's this conversation here about salt. About salt. Like, salt flavors. It stings. Right? We talk about putting salt on a wound is like this really painful thing. Uh, to dis- how we describe someone saying something that adds insult to injury is putting salt in a wound. Um, salt disinfects, it burns in order to benefit. And it was a preservative in the ancient world. Um, in Leviticus chapter 2 verse 13. Y'all know Leviticus, that place where your plans have already went to die this year? Anybody made it past Leviticus yet? Didn't think so. Leviticus 2.13 says... That when you offer a grain offering, that when you offer a grain offering, that it was required that you added to the grain offering salt. And I think that's a root root idea that Jesus is picking up here on the sacrificial salt idea. That grain offering is burned. It was a picture, salt in the grain offering in Leviticus was a picture of God's preserving grace in covenant. This is where I go full Baptist and say, if saved, always saved, all right? And sacrificial salt was the symbol of the covenant relationship. It's preserved since to the end. That when you met with God in the temple in the Old Testament, and you offered this grain offering with salt, it was a picture that though all fire be around you it won't you're going to make it out and you're going to be God's all the way to the end if you didn't have the salt in there it was unacceptable you couldn't it was forbidden to give without salt it was unsatisfactory to the lord to have an offering that didn't have salt If the sacrifice was not salted, it was not offered. Church, here's maybe how I would put this. You may be salted with fiery trials and persecutions and others trying to make you stumble. But you are a temple sacrifice fully offered to God that is purified and not consumed by those flames. Everyone in Christ will be salted with fire, but your covenant with God will endure because of the preservative of the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. I mean, Colby, what's this thing about salt losing its saltiness? I don't know if, you don't have to be, uh, I don't see Joe and Penny. Joe would probably tell us, but um, salt doesn't really lose its uh, chemical property of like sodium chloride. What, what happened in the ancient world is they would get salt and it was mixed with other substances. You know, like, I don't know, bromide or something like that. Like, you would get salt and it was mixed with something else, so it was less salty than pure salt. That makes total sense in all the world. So what would salt have to do in order to lose its saltiness? It would have to be diluted with something that's not salt. It'd have to be mingled. You want to lose your saltiness? You want to be made less useful than be diluted? Be made impure. Or you can remove that which does not belong in you, and your life will be made more salty. I don't know if we believe this, but the Bible is going to argue that sin makes us lose our flavor. Sin makes us lose our flavor. I know some of us in here have been addicted to stuff. Maybe one or two of us. All right. And I mean the kind of addiction that is all-encompassing. You can't get out of it. And I think a lot of us, that, especially that have been addicted to drugs at some point, we would realize that on some point we did the drugs because we thought it added to us. We thought it it gave pleasure, it added something. But over time, the more that we added it to our lives, we lost something of ourselves. Amen? Now, you ain't got to have drugs, because some of you, that's what happened with your lying or your pride or your sexual sin. But I'll tell you that the more the drug you put in your veins the less you were yourself. Why? Because we were deluded. We became less than the person that God called us to be. So here's maybe the love of God in Jesus, is that Jesus takes away our sin to make us more fully who we were meant to be. He comes to make us full flavor flavor so how does he do that he does that through the gospel he does that through what he accomplished on the cross the grace of god gave us the son of god to die for our sins and i will say this you will never repent of sins that are as precious to you as your hand your foot and your eye without the grace of god without the grace of god you will never let go of sin So my question for you is, have you ever answered this radical call of discipleship? A call to turn from the path that is leading you to the worst possible outcome and the worst possible version of yourself. Have you ever turned from that path that turns to Jesus, who is the best and draws you into the best full-flavor version of who you were meant to be from the beginning? Have you ever answered that call? Because if you are chasing sin now... Having heard what we have talked about today, you are chasing that sin and ignoring the cross and the truth of God which has been laid out before you today. And in order to get that thing that you want, you're going to have to run rampshod right over all the truth of God that's been revealed to you in your life. One last story and we're done. Martin Lloyd-Jones was a great preacher. He was a doctor and then became a preacher and uh, kind of an old school, 20th, early 20th century kind of guy. And uh, he told a story about debt that I think kind of explains this. He said, um, if he had a friend stop by his house and the friend saw a bill on the ground and picked it up and realized it was a debt that his friend owed and paid the debt, Martin Lloyd-Jones says, I would have no idea how to respond to my friend unless I knew what the debt was. Like, if it was just postage due, we might bump, slap, handshake, Right? If it's a small bill, I might very graciously thank him for paying it. But if it's the IRS about to seize me, my wife, my kids, my boat, my house, every I'm going to jail without this thing. I've never paid taxes, right? I'm an outlaw out here on the western front. And the government is looking for me and my friend comes and pays a debt he did not owe that I was incapable of paying. I got to go something in gratitude more than a handshake. I might fall at his feet. At his feet, I might. I might go above and beyond in gratitude to what he has done for me. But see, the thing is, is until I know what the debt was, I don't know how to respond in gratitude. If you don't, church. Understand how you've lost your salt and how you deserve hell, then you won't get the cross where Jesus takes the wrath of God. You may give you a different language. This is where Jesus takes the hell that we deserve. You won't sing until He's paid a debt for you like that until you can look at the evil that you have put your hands to throughout your life and see what justice rightly demands on that, until you see that evil and that justice being satisfied on the cross, you're not going to sing. Unless you understand hell, you will never know how much Christ loves you. People trying to make God more loving by erasing hell are actually making Him out to be less loving than He actually is. All of the plot lines of justice and grace converge at the cross. Amen? Let me pray for you. God, Heavenly Father, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, turn our appetites appetites to want life in that more than we want the sin we hold so dear. God, I don't know about everybody else in this room, but if you ask me at the right time, my sin has been more precious to me than my hand, my foot, or my eye. And I've held on to it with everything that I've had. If not for your grace... I would have never laid it even once at the foot of the cross and turned away. And so, for whatever my brothers and sisters are struggling with here, God, would you let them, would you enable them by your grace and your gospel to lay it down at the cross? Father, if there's somebody here who is on a trajectory in their sin and in pursuit of their sin, that is leading them straight to hell, God, would you break their heart and turn them from that that path that they might know you and life everlasting. God, give us a seriousness about what your word says. A seriousness about sin and a seriousness about life in your kingdom. Father, thank you for Jesus who took our hell, who took the justice we deserve, who took our wrath, who took our punishment so that we might go free. God, forgive us where we think we're not criminals. Forgive us where we think we're good people who don't need grace. Have mercy on us, we pray. In Jesus' name, everybody said.